The sermon scripture text is from Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, were, who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me open it with a word of prayer again. Our Lord, as we come before your word, may it speak afresh to our hearts. May we have ears that are willing to hear what it is you want to say to us. Lord, where our flesh is strong, may you subdue it by your grace and your kindness and your power. May the words of life find a home in our hearts. May we dwell on Jesus. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. There are two truths that we as Christians have to hold together and balance if we want to live lives that are fruitful to the glory of Jesus Christ. And the first truth that we have to kind of hold in balance is that the gospel, uh, every generation has to encounter the gospel afresh. Um, They have to encounter the risen Jesus themselves And then they have to express their discipleship in ways that make sense in their context. It's not enough just to kind of mimic what our parents did down to everything they did, but we have to actually express our discipleship in the risen Christ in oftentimes new ways. We take the faith that's been handed down once for all to the saints, and then we express it in ways that make sense in the unique context that we live in. And so in a sense, every generation is going to live out their discipleship in some new ways. That's one tension, truth we have to live in. But the other one is that the kingdom will only advance by Christians doing Christian things. So in other words, yes, as we encounter the risen Jesus ourselves, we have to express our discipleship in ways that make sense in our world, but inevitably we'll all end up doing the same basic things. As we live out our, our, our encountering of Jesus Christ and his gospel, we'll worship together, we'll read the scriptures together, we'll pray together, and we'll disciple together. In other words, each generation lives out the gospel in fresh ways by doing the same thing 
that Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. And Jesus takes those Christian things we do, very ordinary, and uses them to build his church and advance his kingdom to the glory of his name. That's what we see in our text this morning. We see Christians doing Christian things. That's the title of my sermon. And then Jesus, we see him using these very ordinary Christian things, again, to build his church and advance his kingdom and do far more than we would expect him to do through these very ordinary Christian things. So I outlined for us, our first point is, first, a brief travel itinerary. Second point, Christians doing Christian things. So first point, a brief travel itinerary. Let me uh, read us for us again, um, Acts 18 to 23. Again, we're in Acts chapter 18. We'll look at verses 18 to 23 first. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Kentre, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow and they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a period longer, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And then he went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. In these verses, we basically get a condensed itinerary of how Paul ends his second missionary journey and then begins his third And I'm going to be honest with you, as a pastor, when you read that, you start to sweat a little bit and get anxious because you're like, oh my word, what am I going to say about this travel itinerary? I plan my preaching out six to eight weeks in advance. I can't change it the week of. But as I spent time in this text, I read it and reread it and studied it and prayed over it, I was amazed that all of God's word really is breathed out by God and useful And there are things that the Spirit wants to speak to us even through a travel itinerary, which we'll get to. But first, I want to actually kind of break down where he's going, because these are a bunch of names that probably don't mean much to you. They don't mean much to me, because we don't live in this time period. But it's helpful to see where Paul's going, to know that these are real historical events, and just get, you know, a picture of, of what exactly is happening. So I have a map of Paul's second missionary journey, and he's starting up here on the left in Achaia, that green spot, and he's in Corinth. This is the first place he goes to is Kentre, which was really a port city of Corinth. It was just a couple miles away. And there he has his haircut. He has this vow, which we'll talk about. And after he leaves Kentre, he sails across, what is that, the Aegean Sea, stops at Ephesus briefly, and then he goes down to Caesarea. And it's interesting. It says that he lands at Caesarea, goes up to the church, greets the brothers and sisters, and then goes down to Antioch. And it sounds like he's going to Caesarea, but actually he's going to Jerusalem. Because for a Jew to speak of going up to a city and going down from a city always referred to Jerusalem because that Jerusalem was the Temple Mount, the mountain that the temple was built on. And so in the Jews' worldview, Jerusalem was always the highest pinnacle. You were always either going up to Jerusalem or down from Jerusalem. So anyway, so he lands at Caesarea, goes down to Jerusalem for a little while, then goes back up to Antioch, which is his sending church, visits there for a while, and then he begins his third missionary journey by going back into what is Turkey, Asia Minor, which was where he had planted his first churches on his first missionary journey. So he's going throughout the churches that he planted and strengthening them and encouraging them. So that's what he does. Now here are three insights that we get out of this travel itinerary that Luke 
by the inspiration of the Spirit, saw fit to include for us. First, we see Paul's freedom in Christ. Look at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And at Kentre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Uh, Now, most commentators think that's a Nazarite vow. If you remember from our Judges series, uh, Samson took a Nazarite vow, but his was a little bit unusual. Nazarite vows are supposed to be for a short time period, and then you were done, but Samson was a Nazarite from birth until death. But typically, it was a vow you would take oftentimes in thanksgiving to God for something he had done in the past or something you were hoping he would do in the future, and you were supposed to uh, not cut your hair, avoid alcohol, dead bodies, and anything unclean. And so Paul has taken this Nazarite vow. He's cut his hair in Kentre because he's ending his Nazarite vow. And the final part of that vow would have been to actually offer up that hair as a sacrifice in Jerusalem itself, which is, we assume, what he did. But here's the, here's the tension and the problem. Why would Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, who in no uncertain terms has said that he is not bound to the law, Special effects. <laughs> now everyone's paying attention. That was, I planned that the whole time. Um, why is Paul, who's the apostle of the Gentiles, who's very clear that salvation is by faith, by grace through faith, why is he carrying out part of the ceremonial part of the Old Testament? This isn't even like the Ten Commandments. This was like part of the ceremonial parts, the uncleanliness and cleanliness of the Old Testament. Why is he doing that? Why would he do that? Again, there are critical scholars who would argue that this is evidence that this is a made-up story. The Paul who wrote Galatians would never undertake a Nazarite vow. It would be placing himself underneath the law once again. I mean, Paul, again, in Galatians 2 wrote, for, the, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. If he's died to the law, why is he carrying out the law? Well, the answer is that there is freedom in the gospel to do this or not do this. Paul understood that his justification was by faith and had nothing to do with carrying out a Nazarite vow or not. He was free to do so or not to do so. His salvation was found in the Christ who died for him. And since he was free to, that meant, look, just because they weren't, the Jews weren't bound to keep the Old Testament for their salvation doesn't mean that parts of it weren't helpful. So it's likely that Paul took this Nazarite vow because in his freedom, he didn't have to do it, but he found it to be spiritually helpful. Because remember what had happened in Corinth, Jesus had promised, am I out of this, Chandler, am I out of this microphone or this microphone? Okay. Uh, do you want to switch to this one? Okay, because I'm still getting feedback. Okay. Um, uh, let's bring it back. No, that's okay. Where was I? Um, I was preaching. Thank you. There's freedom in the gospel. There's freedom in the gospel. Yeah, just because uh, Paul didn't have to carry out parts of the Old Testament doesn't mean it wasn't spiritually helpful. So remember, in Corinth, Jesus had promised Paul something really important. He said, Paul, people will attack you, but they won't be able to harm you. And then Jesus was true to his promise, and he protected Paul for a year and a half. And so Paul had a real reason to give thanks to Jesus Christ for his protection. And since there was freedom for him to do that, and he found it to be a helpful way to express his gratitude to God, Paul 
took on this Nazarite vow. Martin Luther, when he was engaged in his reformation of the church, he was really concerned about, well, he was a, he was a monk, and in monasteries, the monks all took vows of celibacy. And oftentimes, and not, it was very much viewed as a way of earning favor before God, and so monks would spend their life trying to earn God's favor so that they could avoid damnation, condemnation, and in fact, if they were really righteous, they could even earn other people's salvation too. And Paul was very concerned that uh, monks who were trusting in Jesus but still taking these vows of celibacy would begin to view them as somehow meritorious or earning their salvation. And so Martin Luther tended to be pretty against vows of celibacy. He said, no, you should, you should get married. That's what God designed most humans to do. But at the same time, Luther would say, look, if a monk was trusting in Jesus Christ and his death for the forgiveness of sins, and he wanted to take a vow of celibacy as an expression of his love for Jesus, he was free to do that. Any takers on that one? But so again, Paul probably found this Nazarite vow helpful in expressing his love of Jesus. But it wasn't only because it was beneficial to him that he took this Nazarite vow. Paul was free in Christ to worship Jesus, but he was also free to serve. And if you remember on that map, Paul was going to go to Jerusalem. And Paul, as an apostle to the Gentiles, kind of ruffled some feathers with his Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And so taking a Nazarite vow was one way of kind of easing the concerns of his Jewish brethren in Jerusalem that no, he had not rejected Moses. No, he had not rejected the Old Testament. No, he had not rejected his Jewish ethnic heritage. An easy way for Paul to do something that would matter to his Jewish brothers and sisters, because the Paul, he could or he could not, it didn't matter. His salvation was in Christ. He was free to or free not to. But if doing so would encourage and help the consciences of his Jewish brothers and sisters, then he was going to do it. Again, we see Paul's freedom in Christ, uh, freedom to worship and to love and to serve others. That's the first insight. Second insight we see from this travel itinerary is that the Spirit works in unexpected ways. Look at verses 19 to 21. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a, long, a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. It's so interesting. Paul kind of stumbles into what will be the most fruitful ministry we have in Paul's recorded ministries. We'll see this in Acts 19, but Paul's time in Ephesus is the most fruitful of all the ministries we have him recorded doing. And he just stumbles across it. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't expect Ephesus to be any different than any other city he's been in. He doesn't leave time to do ministry in Ephesus. I mean, he shows up and he's like, oh, wow, there's interest here, but I gotta, I gotta go. Paul doesn't see what's going to come. In fact, the ministry at Ephesus is going to be so effective, it will change the commercial and economic activity of this city. So many people become Christians in Ephesus, and they burn their magic books and their books of, of worship to foreign deities and demons. It, it begins to change the economic output of the city. Look, people, when a city's economic activity changes because people turn to Jesus, that's revival. Paul didn't expect that to happen in Ephesus. Oftentimes, brothers and sisters, oftentimes Jesus will call you to places that you had no expectation of him working in. And your greatest work for his kingdom may be doing, may be doing things in places with people that you never expected to be doing or serving or being in. 
And this is why we have to always remain open to the guidance of the Spirit. Because the Spirit oftentimes works in unexpected places, and it's in the Ephesus of the world, of all places, that he uses us to do his greatest work. So again, first insight, we see Paul's freedom in Christ. Second, the Spirit works in unexpected ways. But third, and this is kind of the theme of our sermon here, is just look at the ordinary work of discipleship. Verse 23, and after spending some time there, he departed, and he went from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Again, Paul goes in, after he's in Antioch, he goes into the place where he planted his first churches, and it says that he's strengthening all the disciples. What did that look like? Well, it doesn't tell us, but we can assume it looked like what it looked like everywhere else, meeting together, praying together, reading the scriptures together. Ordinary discipleship. There's something comforting about knowing that Brothers and sisters, what we are doing in our ordinary discipleship is what Christians have literally done for 2,000 years. And Christ has used it to build his church and advance his kingdom in ways that I don't think anyone could have expected to happen 2,000 years ago. So that's our first point, a brief itinerary. Second point, Christians doing Christian things. Let me read verses 24 to 28 for us. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Here we get a small, random, seemingly random story, but in this story we're introduced to Apollos, who goes on to be one of the key leaders of the early church, in Corinth, certainly, but likely throughout the Mediterranean world. And we're told a couple things about Apollos that are noteworthy to take in mind as we understand who this man was. First, he says he was a Jew from Alexandria. Now, Alexandria was one of the major cities of the Roman Empire, had a long, illustrious history of, of intellectual life. It had schools that were famous throughout the empire. It also had the largest Jewish population outside of Israel. Uh, there were estimated to be over 200,000 Jews who lived in Alexandria at the time of Jesus. And in fact, the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament, sorry, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so Old Testament's written in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek. It was translated in Alexandria about 200 years before Jesus. And in fact, many of the apostles, when they quote from the Old Testament, they're quoting the Septuagint. So anyways, it was a significant city, and to be a man who was eloquent or learned, seemingly trained in Alexandria, means that he would have been a fairly impressive man with an impressive pedigree, so to say. He says that he was eloquent, or you could translate as learned. He was a smart dude. He knew a lot. He had been trained in the liberal arts, logic, rhetoric, all these sorts of things. He was also competent in the scriptures. Again, we have to remember that's referring to the Old Testament. New Testament's not been written. But he knew the Old Testament scriptures. He could handle them well. He knew how they pointed to the Messiah. He could exegete it accurately. 
said that he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. We don't know who taught him about Jesus, but someone had told Apollos about Jesus. And when the fact that it says it was instructed in the way of the Lord, when Luke uses that word, the way, that's referring to Jesus' salvific work, his life, death, resurrection. Whatever Apollos knew, he knew enough about Jesus to know about the salvation that's found in Jesus. But, oh, by the way, he only knew the baptism of John. Now, for some of you, you're like, and other you are like, well, it's the baptism of John. I don't really know. So we're going to look at what the baptism of John is, because this is a big part of what's going on here. Now, John the Baptist, he was a Jew who came before Jesus, and we see his ministry before Jesus' public ministry. In Luke, for instance, so Luke chapter 3, verses 2 to 4, we're introduced to John the Baptist and his baptism, which is what is being referred to here. So during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's John's baptism. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So what was John's baptism? It was a baptism of repentance to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. The day of the Lord that had been prophesied in the Old Testament was beginning in the coming of Jesus. The Messiah was going to come. Prepare your hearts to receive him. And you could do this in this very like physically, physically powerful way. That, you, know, you think of the image of being cleansed of dirt by being bathed, repenting and preparing to receive Jesus. That doesn't take into account Jesus' work. It's a preparatory act, not an act that is, you know, assuming all that then happened. So what does this mean that he only knew the baptism of John? What did Apollos know? What didn't he know? And there's debate on this because it doesn't tell us. In fact, some people think Apollos wasn't a Christian. They think that Priscilla and Aquila had to take him aside and lead him to Christ. I don't think that's the case because it doesn't say that Apollos believed and was baptized which is the standard formula in Acts for when someone becomes a Christian. Nor does it say that Priscilla and Aquila had to rebuke Apollos as if he had been teaching heresy. Instead, it says that they pulled him aside and taught him it more accurately. So what seems to have been the case with Apollos is that he just, what he was saying was true, it just wasn't complete. There was something about Jesus and the gospel that he just didn't quite get. Maybe he didn't fully understand how the life of the Spirit works in a believer. Because again, that came after Jesus. Or maybe he didn't quite understand how faith and works practically lives itself out in the life of a believer. The point is, what he was saying about Jesus was true as far as it went. It just wasn't complete. And so Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, explain the message of the gospel more fully, and then Apollos goes on to be a tremendous help to the church around the world. And in this, we see a beautiful example of what Jesus can do when Christians do Christian things. What Jesus can do through very ordinary and very simple discipleship. And there's two things I want us to notice this morning about this ordinary Christian discipleship. First, notice how relational the discipleship is with Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila don't say, oh no, we have young men who don't know the full message of the gospel. Let's get a guest speaker. They don't say, hey, Apollos, here's a bunch of books. Go read them. Hope it works out. 
They don't say, oh, we need to start a program, a 12-week Sunday school series where we can teach all our young men. What do they do? They just pull him aside, and they meet with him themselves, them two and Apollos. And they teach him more accurately the way of Jesus. Beloved, nothing, nothing, hear me, nothing can replace the power of relationally discipling people, of being willing to invest in people, your life, your time, your knowledge, your insights. Nothing can replace that. And in fact, the church can't exist without it. You know, we have a a beautiful building, so grateful for a place to meet that we don't have to worry about renting. If we stopped caring for our building and just let it go to seed, eventually our building would fall apart, we wouldn't be able to use it. But guess what? Our church would still exist. Yes, it would be a headache. We'd still exist. If our bank account hit zero, we would still exist. You know how I know that? Because this happened before. But if we fail to disciple other Christians, especially those who are younger than us, there will be no church in the future. Game over. Nothing can replace the personal discipleship, one-on-one discipleship. And we can do other forms of discipleship. Sunday school has its place, but it's a very poor substitute, and we'll be raising up a very weak and inadequate generation if that's all we have, if we don't have this kind of one-on-one, two-on-one, personal, intimate, relational discipleship. Now, a lot of times uh, when we talk about this kind of one-on-one discipleship, we'll get objections. One objection is, well, Mike, I don't, I like the idea, but I I don't know enough to disciple someone. Like, I I haven't been to seminary, or I've been to seminary, but I don't think that was enough. What if I get asked questions I don't understand? What if I say something that's wrong and teach someone the wrong thing? Brothers and sisters, Apollos was about as impressive as they come. Again, he was highly educated. And Priscilla and Aquila were just two tent makers from a rural province in northern Turkey. But Priscilla and Aquila had sat under the teaching of Paul for a year and a half. They knew the scriptures, and they'd been walking with Jesus, and they knew something. And they had something to share with Apollos. And Apollos, although he was much smarter than them, and knew they could never, you know, converse with him on the level that he could, was wise enough to realize that this very ordinary couple had things to teach him about what it means to follow Jesus. When I was in D.C., there were two men who discipled and mentored me, and both of them were used by Jesus in very powerful ways. The first man was my pastor, who, you know, like me, was very intellectual, liked to read, liked to debate ideas, He had been to seminary. He knew the Bible better than me. He knew theology better than me. He was an incredible help. Grateful for Matt Jaber. The second man who mentored me was Kirk Farrell, who was a a farm boy from Iowa, who was also very smart and very successful in his career, but he was not smart in the same way as Matt. He was not an intellectual. He didn't read tons of books. He couldn't discuss literature and philosophy and all these things with me. But I learned from Kirk what it means to love a family, and to lead your family, and to lay your life down for your wife, and how to trust in God through discouragement and disappointment. And I get to share story after story. Two men, dramatically different. And Jesus used them both equally because they were willing to invest in this 25-year-old punk. And I'm so grateful. 
So first, notice how relational this discipleship is. And I'll tell you this, half the benefit in discipleship, y'all, is just taking the time to care about people. That really is half the benefit to those who experience this kind of discipleship. But second, notice how Jesus uses ordinary discipleship to advance his kingdom. There are no apostles in this story. The most impressive person in the story is Apollos, the one receiving discipleship. It's just ordinary Christians doing ordinary things. And then look what Jesus does. Verse 27 and 28. And he go, and Apollos goes to Achaia, which is where Corinth was. And the brothers encouraged him, they wrote disciples. And when he arrived in Achaia, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Priscilla and Aquila, like they're just doing ordinary discipleship. And then Apollos goes on to help Christians around the world. Jesus takes this very ordinary discipleship and then uses it to help and build up the church around the world. It's interesting. You know, Paul planted churches across the Mediterranean. That was the calling he was given. He would never stay in one place for long. He just kept moving. And by Jesus' death, I'm sorry, by Paul's death, around 64 AD, these are estimates. There weren't like Pew research back then. But they estimated that about 1,500 to 3,000 Christians in the world when the Apostle Paul died. 20 years of hard labor, of pouring himself out. If ever a man poured himself out in ministry of the gospel, it was Paul. Maybe 2,000 believers. And, you know, I mean, that includes the believers in Jerusalem who had nothing to do with Paul's labor. I don't, 100% of this is true. I'm pretty sure there are more Christians in one service, a Southeast Christian church, than there were in the entire world when Paul died. About 150 years after Paul's death, there was an estimated 1.3 million Christians. And as of today, about a third of the world professes some belief or affiliation in Christianity. How did that, how did that happen? What happened because hundreds and thousands and then millions of very ordinary but faithful Christians just did very ordinary but faithful discipleship, and the gates of hell were overcome. I think the pattern, here's my application for us. I think the pattern in scripture is, is pretty clear. Jesus builds his church as Christians engage in ordinary Christian discipleship. As Christians do Christians things, so Jesus builds his church and advances his kingdom and the gates of hell are overcome. I mean, again, Priscilla and Aquila, two ordinary Christians, invested personally in Apollos. Paul invested personally in, Ti in Timothy and Silas. Jesus invested personally in 12 men. Yes, he preached to hundreds, if not thousands, but his main ministry was the 12, di 12 disciples. 11 of whom went on to then found the church. This is how Jesus builds his church. It's just us opening ourselves up, investing in those around us. Now, we have to ask, if that's the case, why is this so rare in churches? Or why is it more rare than it should be? You know, there are many Christians who grew up in the church and have never had an older or more mature Christian invest in them, spend 50, 60, 70 years. 
There are many Christians who've spent decades in the church and have never themselves tried to invest in a younger Christian or more immature Christian. If we see the pattern, if it's given to us in Scripture, and it's so clear, why don't we see more of this in our church? Why don't we see more of this in Vine Street, beloved? Well, I think part of the reason, if I could place myself in your midst and talk to myself as well, that it's not always as important to us as it should be or at least not as important as all the things we give our busy lives to. And the first place we might need to start is repenting and realizing our hearts have been disordered and we care more about so many things except the kingdom of God. And we have time for so many things, for anything and everything except that which Christ commanded every Christian to do, which is go and make disciples. And when we repent, that's when the Spirit is poured out. And that's when we know Jesus more fully because he's gracious and as we sang, our sins are many but his mercy is more. Part of it may be we just need to repent because we have wasted and squandered the inheritance that Christ bought with his blood. And again, I'm in the pews preaching to myself as I say that. But also, I think one of the reasons why we don't see more of this kind of one-on-one discipleship in our churches is, is also because we probably have unrealistic expectations of what that involves. So we think, well, uh, I met with someone and it was awkward and uncomfortable, and well, I guess that means Jesus isn't calling me to do that. Or um, we meet with someone and there like, isn't a major breakthrough after months of meeting. We think, well, Jesus can't be in this. Or we think, well, you know, I... I can't instruct someone on like Trinitarian doctrine and the subtleties of the Christian faith and therefore I have nothing to share. Or on the flip side, unless someone can instruct me on the subtleties of the the Trinity, like they have nothing to teach me. And so we have these unrealistic expectations and because of that, we don't ever obey this command that Jesus has given to every believer to go and make disciples. And so I hope this is helpful, but this is what I thought I wanted to finish with. We just share with you what discipleship has looked like in my life. And it has been so simple, and yet Christ has used it. When I meet with someone for discipleship, in this season of my life, it looks like typically every other week, once a month, sometimes weekly, if there's something urgent I'm working through. But this is what that time looks like. First 20, 30 minutes, we just hang out. I try to ask a lot of good questions. I'm just trying to get to know the person, ask how they're doing, and listen well. Second half, we read the Bible together, and then we pray, and the meeting's over. I don't prepare a lesson. Y'all, I don't prepare for those meetings at all, beyond praying for the person, because I don't have time. I'm busy like you are. I don't have time to create a 10-hour lesson plan. And there's something really powerful about just reading the Bible and letting it land afresh. Hey, what does this say to you? How does this affect your life? What's the way we can apply this together? It's so simple. I'm not kidding you. A lot of times when I meet up with someone for the first time, I really expect them at the end to be like, that was a giant waste of time. Thank you, Mike, for wasting an hour of my life. I don't need to do this again. And I've been in vocational ministry for about eight years. And it's only happened once. And it was at Bellarmine. It was before Kyler's time. I don't think you need a student. But he told me in no uncertain terms that he did not want to meet with me again. And that's fine. I slept fine that night. I've slept fine every night since. But it's so simple. 
And the fact is that I, the Lord has used that to build his church. I can't claim any credit because, again, I'm just showing up. I'm praying and reading the scriptures and asking good questions, and yet the Lord builds his church through this very ordinary, very simple discipleship. Beloved, the question is, will you make yourself available? Like if you have an hour a month, two hours a month, you have time. Are you going to make yourself available? There are, there are discipleship opportunities all around you. Your neighbors, your coworkers, family, friends, here at Vine Street. Discipleship also, by the way, involves non-believers. Are there non-believers in your life who've never read the Bible with a Christian because they've never been invited to? And I tell you what, if you've never read the Gospel of Mark with a non-Christian, oh, there are a few things that are more exciting and exhilarating and terrifying and faith-inducing than reading the Gospel of Mark with someone who's never read it before and doesn't believe it, and to see them begin to grapple with the claims of Jesus. There are discipleship opportunities all around us. The question is, will we make ourselves available? Because Jesus delights, hear this, Jesus delights to build his church and advance the kingdom through ordinary, plain, simple acts of Christian discipleship and faithfulness. And he does that to throw scorn on our pride because, let's be honest, we would prefer to think that the kingdom advances because we're so great and we are so passionate and we're so good at what we do, but the reality is Jesus does all this through very ordinary acts of discipleship to encourage the humble and the lowly at heart that Jesus will do far more through our simple acts of obedience and faithfulness, through stewarding the opportunities that Jesus brings into our life. He will do far more with that than we can possibly imagine. So that, to Christ alone be the glory. Forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are a Lord who does not work through perfect humans, but you work through clay pots that are cracked and breaking and inadequate in so many ways, and yet you use us to bring the treasure of the gospel to those around us. Lord, may we see the harvest is plentiful it's just the laborers are few. And may it break our hearts. Lord, may you break our hearts not out of guilt or shame, but in the beauty of the one who died for us to cleanse us so that you might send us out to do your work. Help us to see the opportunities around us. Help us to steward those opportunities, knowing that you are a gracious taskmaster and your burden is light all the things we chase in this world, they will grind us into the ground and they will kick us when we're down. But you, your burden is light for you are a kind master. You are our brother and our friend. Jesus, make us your own. I pray this in your Holy Spirit. Amen.